Good morning. Welcome. Let's stand together and hear from God's word. Psalm 34 encourages us, calls us. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Won't you say this with me? Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Once again, we gather together to, to join body and soul to magnify and exalt the Lord. With our limited minds, our limited hearts, we magnify to see him as he is, to see his bigness, his majesty, and to see what he has done in Christ. And with our limited voices and songs, exalt his holy name now and forever. So let's clap and sing together to our King. Welcome to Desert Springs Church. If you're 
a first-time visitor, whether you're here in the worship center or viewing online, we're so glad you can join us. What we welcome you to is not ourselves. We don't welcome you to our opinions, to our wisdom, to our skills at music or speaking. We welcome you to join us in focusing on Jesus. As we just sang, one line from that song goes like this, praise with us the God of grace. That's what we welcome you to. If you are a first-time visitor later uh, today or tomorrow, we'd love to have you reach out, start a dialogue. Uh, feel free to ask any questions. You can do that by emailing us at info at dscabq.com. And also, if you've got questions, uh, let me recommend two options. Option A, if you like working on a laptop and a monitor, go to our website and click on Upcoming at the top of the screen. That'll show you some Bible studies and seminars coming up in the next month or two. We'd love to have you join us for one of those. Or option B, if you like working off of a smartphone, go to the uh, App Store, search for Desert Springs Church, we are sometimes the second hit that comes up. There's another Desert Springs Church, I think, in Arizona. Look for the blue and white water drop graphic. That's the one you want. Click download that app, open it up, and then click on register, and you'll see that same list of Bible studies and seminars come up. For our members, this Wednesday we're doing a members meeting. Uh, we usually do Lord's Supper on a Wednesday night, uh, but we'll do a members meeting this Wednesday, hence communion this morning here at church. That members meeting is filled up to capacity. We've got to have you register in advance. So if you did not get to register, uh, watch your inbox Wednesday morning. We'll send out an email with a link so that you can join us via live stream Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. when we start that service. Please pray with me now, and let's pray for this service this morning. Father, help us to sing and to say in this service on Christ the solid rock, I stand. Father, we pray that our hope would not be in a president or a party or jobs or health. May our hope be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so we ask, in this service, you will help us worship as we ought. We all come through these doors with idols, with distractions, perhaps with depression, may you, by your spirit and by your word, feed our souls this hour, that we might say, all glory be to Christ our King. Amen. Let us stand and continue to worship and confess together. From depths of woe I raise to thee The voice of lamentation Lord, turn a gracious ear to me And hear my supplication if thou iniquities dost mark Our secret sins and misdeeds dark Who shall stand before thee? 
shall stand before thee? To wash away the cleansing His grace
say amen. You can be seated. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, in a week that started with Martin Luther King Day and ended with the passing of Hank Aaron, we pray for those of color in this country. We pray for those of us who are white and how we treat them. We ask that you would help us, all of us, to be as the Samaritan was in Luke chapter 10, that when someone is hurting, perhaps especially someone different than us, that we would reach out. We ask that we would not imitate the religious people in that parable who not only passed by but intentionally walked the other way. Father, we call out racism for what it is, sin. And we confess that it is not a sin of the past, but the present. That humans will always find a way of demeaning others who look different. Father, I think of a brother in Christ in this church who is Native American who was denied opportunities and received dozens of slurs as he grew up in New Mexico. I hurt with him, yet I rejoice that Christ is more than enough to turn his heart from bitterness to joy. Father, we pray that as a church, we would be like the church Paul prayed for in Ephesians chapter 2, Jew and Gentile united by the blood of Christ. Show us what Jew and Gentile means for our day. Show us what it means to be united by the gospel, not by the affinities of this world. Father, we also pray for our state legislature. It pains our hearts that our state is seen as the leader in the allowance of late-term abortions. Father, we ask that as Senate Bill 10 is discussed this week, even tomorrow in the Roundhouse, that truth would be spoken, that unborn lives, hearts, minds, and futures would be protected. And as we prayed last week, that physicians and medical staff would be protected when they decide to follow their conscience and biblical views of life and decline to participate in abortions. And fathers, we have a member of our church who serves in the state legislature and speaks for the unborn. Please give him strength and wisdom as he interacts with his fellow congressmen and congresswomen. 
Finally, Father, we ask for our new president and new congressmen and women in Washington. You see their minds every day. Reveal your truth to these new leaders. Help them to see the Bible, not as a book of myths, but as the very voice of God, your voice, your will, your wisdom. And above all, may they see Jesus as the the Lord of all lords and the King eternal. May we pray for them as they seek these leaders to protect this natural world, to protect jobs and education, the rights of the oppressed. But we pray that they would see that these things are not where ultimate meaning is. Life, true life, eternal life is in Jesus, in your Son alone. And we pray in his name. Amen. Let us stand and continue in prayer through song. Lord, we come to hear your word. Shine your light your soul send your spirit forth and
walking kids get life and kill. Yes, draw us, Lord. Draw convicted life and fear. Amen. If you would, remain standing. And if you have a copy of God's Word with you, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. The passage will be on the screens uh, to the sides here if you'd like to follow along there. But I'd encourage you to look on your own Bible, whether in hard copy or digital form. Today we return to a study of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, a study that we put on hold for eight weeks around Christmas time, and we return to it today, picking up in chapter 8. Follow along as I read the chapter in its entirety. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Milkiah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, The day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. 
And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Lord, this is your word, and we ask that by your power, according to your word, through your Holy Spirit, would you work in your people for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You could be seated. Well, it was only fall of 2019 that we were last in Nehemiah 8. And those with us back then will likely remember that this was part of our sermon series we called Next where we were asking and seeking to answer what is next for us as a church. Uh, And that related to us being all in on some ministry initiatives and uh, in some building expansion as well. And by the way, if you're new around here, new enough to have not been around in the fall of 2019, we'd encourage you to go and check out those six messages on our website or on the DSC app. Just look for the series called NEXT in all caps, and you'll find those messages there that uh, are important for us not only in the past and in the now, but also uh, in the future. Those who were with us back then remember that we were looking at Nehemiah 8 as I, well, tried to paint the picture of God's people and the beauty of God's people being assembled under God's word as one. Verse 1 says, They assembled under the word as one man. And so I leaned upon Nehemiah 8 to paint the picture for us of DSC eventually, someday in God's providence, uh, moving to one service. Well, despite the speed bumps that COVID has uh, put upon us, that is still our goal. And uh, we are still moving along in God's kindness. That renovation project as well is moving along uh, in God's kindness. And because of you, in, because of your generosity and faithfulness to give uh, what we committed to in the fall of 2019, we're still moving along despite the unusual and trying days of COVID. Uh, The short of it is you keep giving and so we keep making steps forward. Uh, And so we hope to be under construction by May of this year. Uh, You'll eventually see a youth room obliterated and uh, machinery in our courtroom as they seek to close that in. 
uh, you can be praying for that whole process, and we thank you for your support of it. Well, let's leave all that aside for now uh, as we come to Nehemiah 8 again, but in some ways more naturally this time, or at least in its literary context unlike before. Nehemiah has roughly two halves to it. And the first half we've already covered. It's about rebuilding the place of Jerusalem. The place. The second half has to do with rebuilding the people of God. You could say that the first half had to do with the walls being rebuilt. And the second half now turns to this need of renovating God's worship. The physical structures are settled in some ways. And now we must think about that spiritual matter of the heart. So having repaired the walls, now attention turns in chapter 8 to repairing worship. And there are four R words that will help us organize our thoughts on Nehemiah 8. And each of them relate to the scriptures, to what we call the word of God. The first is ready. Here is a people who are ready for the word. The people of God are ready for the word and really on multiple levels. Again, the historical context here is so important. These 50,000 people, as the accounting of Nehemiah 7 told us, they were not long ago enslaved in a foreign land. They and their parents had been in captivity in Babylon for more than 70 years. And in those days, they did not have their own private Bibles. They did not have family Bibles. In those days, they did not have the luxury of going to the temple to pray daily or going to Jerusalem for the seven annual feasts, as God prescribed or even assembling weekly, as later they would do in what they called synagogues, to hear the Bible read and the Bible taught. Now, they had none of that in the days of the Babylonian captivity and in the early days of the return to Jerusalem. God's people had endured a Bibleless existence in some ways, apart from whatever their parents tucked away in their memory and took with them to Babylon and perhaps passed on to their children, there was simply no Bible. And upon return to Jerusalem, as we've been seeing in the book of Nehemiah, as you probably know from the grand sweeping story of the plan of God, the city of Jerusalem had been laying waste. And so it was in the days of the book of Ezra, the previous book to Nehemiah, where there was that need for rebuilding the temple. And that occupied 20-some years of God's people rebuilding the temple. And so now as we are in the book of Nehemiah, in those days, yes, the temple is rebuilt, but the city is still Laying to waste. It's still, as it says in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, it lies in great trouble and shame and the walls are down and the gates are burned. And so because those city walls are so crucial to a city's survival, especially in the ancient Near East, Nehemiah leads that painstaking effort 
brick by brick or boulder by boulder to rebuild the wall. And that dramatic story is told in Nehemiah 1 through 7. But now that the city walls are built up, what's next? Where does attention turn now? Where would your attention turn? What would seem reasonable to you if you were governor of Jerusalem? Maybe set up places of business. Get some commerce going. You know, make some money. Maybe make sure that the agriculture is in place. Get that soil tilled. Maybe erect some more permanent homes. They haven't yet. That seems pretty important. But instead, in chapter 8, they look to the book. They turn to God in worship. They gather to hear from God. Again, let me read verses 1 and 2. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, a city entrance. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. Verse 2, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Now, this is what Moses said long ago. He said this is what God's people should should do from time to time. This is in Deuteronomy 31. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, that is the promised land, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people. Men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of his law. Moses said that long, long time ago. That's what the people here in Nehemiah 8 are doing. It's, it's been the heartbeat of Ezra. It was said back in chapter 7 of Ezra, verse 10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it in all Israel. So this event that we read read of in Nehemiah 8, it's it's an event that's been awaited. It's been prepared for. You see that in the platform that was built for the occasion, a platform not unlike what I'm standing on and standing behind this morning. There was preparation. They planned for this. And yet it seems to arise somewhat on a ground level in an organic kind of way. This seems to be in some ways a people's movement. It seems to be in some ways lay-led because it's the people's cry. They told Ezra, To bring the book. They, the people, gathered as one man, an expression to show their unity and sheer mass. They're ready for the word. And they're more than just ready. They, well, they're eager for it. They've assembled, apparently, with anticipation and expectation. They're hungry and thirsty for it. It's what they need. They know it. And so that's why they've assembled. They've assembled for the word. It's what they've asked for, the word. It's really what they've demanded 
of the spiritual leadership, the book. Now, while this Old Testament worship service isn't like our Sunday Lord's Day worship services in every way, not least the length of time, I'll get to that, there are some similarities. Nehemiah 8 paints a picture of how and why we come to worship and what we come to worship for. What's it for? What's our attitude in coming? We actually get a window into that from Nehemiah 8 better than any New Testament passage that I know of. I don't know of a New Testament passage that describes the actual coming in the, the preface, as it were, you know, the people's clamor for the word leading up to a worship service, at least like we have here in Nehemiah 8. It raises the question, what do we come for when we come on Sunday morning? When you woke up this morning and drove here, what did you expect? What did you want? What do you think you need? They came for the word. We're hungry for it. We should think through the practical ways that we can best ready ourselves each Sunday for corporate worship. How do we wake up on a Sunday morning? Is it the same as Saturday and the same as Friday? Friday's drudgery or Saturday's mindlessness? Or is Sunday different? What is done between our waking up moment and our arriving here? Is that different? Should it be different? Should we think of it differently? I think we should. How do we seek to align our expectations and anticipation? How do we fight off all the things that are not inclined to the word of God and to the worship of God that we find in our hearts? Naturally so. Every Sunday morning. Well, we'll come back to more of that in just a bit. Verses 3 through 8, though, show us that the bulk of their efforts were about, here's our second R word, relaying. Relaying the word. That's what's going on throughout this passage. Throughout, really, and, but especially verses 3 to 8. And we can just read verse 3 and verse 8 again. Ezra read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men, women, and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense or the explanation so that the people understood the reading. From early morning till midday. Five or six hours they heard from God's word. Now, if we try to piece together the scene of what's going on here, I think it's probably a mixture of just the corporate reading of the Bible, and then mingled in there is some explanation of what has just been read. But somewhere in there as well seems something like a, a small group explanation for what had been read and explained corporately as the Levites, those 13 other complicated names, those 13 other names apparently were doing some teaching among the people throughout this time. 
But all told, we have five to six hours of Bible going on here. And I don't think that's prescriptive. In other words, that all churches are required in each worship service to go for at least five to six hours. And all God's people said, Amen. (laughs) But before we roll our eyes at that length of time, we should keep in mind that many of us will very comfortably spend a whole weekend at a kid's soccer tournament. Many of us will take a whole Saturday or a whole Sunday, depending on whether you're a college football type or a pro football type, and you'll watch just a couple of football games, which will take more than six hours. You're not restless about it. You might get up for more queso, but you're not restless or aggravated or thinking, you've got to be kidding me, how long is this football going to go? Now, some of you think that. That's fine. That's somewhat understandable. And maybe you're the type that would sit rather comfortably through a three-plus-hour movie and just think, yeah, I'm glad they didn't condense this to an hour and a half. We sit long through and we put up with, if you put it like that, or we enjoy and enjoy at great length things that we like. When it comes to the word of God and sitting under it, should our attitude towards it be less engagement or less attention or less patience? Should we think of church like going to the Jiffy Lube where we hope to be in and out in less than an hour? And if not, something is massively wrong. And we've got to get out of there so that we can get on with the other really important things. Scheduled for our day. You see, we want our worship in the Lord to be deserving of the Lord, fitting of the Lord. He is great and greatly to be praised. His greatness should have some relationship to the greatness of his worship. We're not putting in our hour with him. We're not giving him our dues. We're not clocking in or clocking out when we come before the Lord and to sit under his word. We should be unhurried. It should be deliberate. It should be patient. At least at our best, we should want that. We should think that way. We should actually fight for that kind of perspective, which which isn't natural to us, is it? It's not our inclination. It's certainly not what our culture is feeding us. It's certainly not what our culture is preparing us for in the days leading up to Sunday morning. Sunday mornings are in some ways to be a realigning of our spiritual compass. And it's like through the rest of the week, we're in the Bermuda Triangle and the magnetic pulse is just everywhere. I don't know whether you think the Bermuda Triangle has any effect on magnets and compasses or not, but I'm just imagining it does. We're, we're like going through the Bermuda Triangle all week. And 75 minutes on a Sunday morning, half-heartedly done, is not enough. We need more. At the very least, 
This 75 minutes on a Sunday morning needs our utmost preparation and attention. And we need to teach this to our kids and model it for them and involve them in it. Did you notice who is in on this meeting? Verse 2, it's the men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And if you say, oh, all who can understand, well, my kids, Ryan, don't get your sermons until they're 18, even if then. <laughs> well, let me read then Deuteronomy 31, 12, which I've already read. Assemble the people, the men and the women, and the little ones, that they may hear and learn. If you don't think kids can pick up anything in a sermon because some of it goes over their head, just talk to someone who has kids in this service and ask them for some stories. Every now and then, kids are coloring, and I say something that they go, what? And they will be willing to talk to you about it after church. If you have children still at home, and you've never read this uh, golden, gold pamphlet that we have out, uh, it's by John Piper and his wife. It's called The Family Together in God's Presence. There aren't too many reading materials that we push and put out and encourage and recommend like this one. It's good for those who have kids. It's good for those of you in this room who don't like kids. And it's good for all of us who just need encouragement on what worship is. So if you haven't read it before, get it and read it. We have copies uh, at the Welcome Center there today. And if you haven't read it in a few years, you, you need to read it again. My wife and I came across this when our kids were probably two on down. And I bet over the years I've read this more than a dozen times. And I needed it each time. I needed that kind of pep talk about having kids with parents in the worship service. So teach your kids, parents. Lead your kids in this, parents. Teach them that wanting a church where the word of God is central is essential. It's a matter of life and death. When your kids become teenagers and they hear about a youth group where the video games are better and the miniature ponies are available for rides and there is infinitely more pizza than is offered in our youth group, don't fold, parents. Don't buckle. Don't say, ah, it better be some church rather than no church. I want them to at least go. No, you need to trust what God's word says about what we need, what kids need, and what the church should be. The meeting of God's people is to be, here, let me write it like this or word it like this. It needs to be word-filled and word-formed. Word-formed in that God's word tells us what we should do when we come together and meet. The, the, the details of Nehemiah 8 described in narrative form are seen elsewhere in Scripture in more didactic ways, like 2 Timothy 4, where Paul wrote to Timothy to teach the word, to preach the word in season and out of season. When it seems like it's going to work and when it seems like it won't, you preach the word. That's God's word forming our worship 
And we learn from Nehemiah 8, apparently it should fill our worship. It's the content and focus of our worship. Did you know that God always works according to his word, by his word, through his word? He just loves this. It's everywhere. God spoke worlds into existence at creation. He spoke them. He didn't need to. He could have done something else. But he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and they stood in place. God creates a people for himself by his word, by promises he gave to Abraham. Think of Ezekiel 37. Can God raise up from these dry bones a people? Yes, Ezekiel, preach to them. He uses his word. I don't know why, but he chooses to do so. In history, where God has worked most powerfully, what what we might sometimes call revivals, the preaching of God's word has always been so powerfully central to what God was doing in that time, in that season. That's what we need. That's what our worship worship service should be about. That's what we want to offer you. We want to read Nehemiah 8 and say, oh good, we're not changing anything. Not read Nehemiah 8 and say, well, that was the old way to do it. That's stupid. Boy, how uncreative is that? Boy, that would be boring. No. So I don't have for you, we don't have for you every Sunday morning, we don't have witty humor, compelling stories, cultural analysis, political intrigue. We don't have for you moving stories about puppies without homes. What we have for you is the word of God. It's sharper than a sword. It cuts to the innermost. It's like honey It drips upon our mouths, and it's sweet to the taste. It's meat. It feeds us. It nourishes us. It's It's like fresh water in a dry land. This is what we want to put before you every Sunday. So receive it. Do your part. It's a two-way street. The leadership must give the word out. That's part of relaying it. But the other half of relaying it is you receiving it. If the leadership gives out the word, but there's no one there to lap it up, the word doesn't have its way. If there's a thirsty people, but the leaders of the church are seeking to offer something else. Well, the word doesn't have sway. These people, it says, verse 3, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book. And it says throughout, they understood. They understood in part because the teachers taught and sought understanding. But the people listened long enough to get understanding. On the most practical of levels, this means that no small part of spiritual warfare on a Sunday morning is simply concentration, keeping our attention to what we're singing, not just the sermon, what we're singing, what is being prayed, and especially because it's the longest, 
what's being preached. Now, we all know how this goes. It's not just uh, for those with lesser IQs or those with ADD or for the unspiritual. We all know how this goes. You're listening to what the preacher is saying for a while, and then he said something about NFL in two games, and you thought, there is two games today. I forgot. There was, I, I think we only recorded one, not the second. I better make sure. I think I can record it from my phone right now. Honey, look, we got them both recorded. It's okay. Or whatever. I remember as a kid hearing that some people had got a hold of old church buildings and turned them into homes. And during those days, I was a little into architecture. And uh, we went to a smaller church. And I, I would sometimes daydream during the sermon. Well, where would you put the bedroom? What would you do with a place like this? I don't, you'd have to put up some walls, that's for sure. But that's when we go, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me get back to what he's saying. Let, let me just, let, let me tune in. Forget what I missed. Dive back in. Dial it in. Concentrate. Concentrate. That's a fight. Now thirdly, we come to this third R, responding. Responding to the word. Really the relaying process goes on and really the response is seen in what we've already read and seen about uh, receiving the word, that they received it, and worshipfully so. But beyond that, there's a twofold response in verses 9 to 12 for responding to the word. There's repentance here and rejoicing. Repentance and rejoicing. There's repentance first, then rejoicing. A logical order of things. You see, in verse 9, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Yes, they will soon be told not to weep. But I believe that they were told not to weep because they first did weep. It is natural to hear God's law, especially read, taught, applied, and to feel conviction. They wept. They wept because they'd been hearing commands that they and their parents and their grandparents, for that matter, had just forgotten about, totally neglected. They wept because God's word had exposed their sin. But it didn't stay there. There's rejoicing. You see, in the second half of verse 9, do not mourn or weep. Then verse 10, he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's what they did. You see here that repentance isn't to remain repentance. We're not supposed to stay there. True repentance legitimate as it is, necessary as it is, must necessarily turn to faith and assurance of grace and celebration and gratitude. Or maybe it isn't true repentance if there's no turn. Do you know that there's a kind of repentance, at least there's a kind of mourning, that's more... It's more akin to self-flagellation. 
I'm going to beat myself up about my sin, seeking to make payment for it almost. Well, that kind of mourning isn't true repentance. It's not godly sorrow. Repentance isn't to remain repentance, but it's to turn in faith and find assurance and express gratitude. These people were not to mourn because the day was holy, and the day was the Feast of Trumpets. We don't know much about the Feast of Trumpets, but trumpets aren't boring. They are loud, they are celebratory, and the Feast of Trumpets was no doubt a celebration of something, probably the trumpet sound that came from Mount Sinai when God gave his word to his people. Don't mourn. This day is holy. Do not be grieved, verse 10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. As I said when I preached this back in fall of 2019, I think that phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength, means not that our joy in the Lord can be our strength, though that's true. But it's deeper than that. It's better than that. I think this means that God's joy is our strength. You say, God's joy? How would God be joyful? Well, he is joyful in doing his people good. Jeremiah 32, there God said, speaking of the day of the restoration, which Nehemiah is in, There God said, I will rejoice to do them good and I will plant them in the land with all my heart and with all my soul. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What kind of God do we serve? What kind of God do we hear from? What kind of God do we worship? We hear from a God of grace, a God who rejoices to do us good. Let that be your strength. And let that be your strength when you find you have no joy in yourself that you can muster up. His joy is your strength. Go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet wine. Send portions to those who don't have anything ready. That's what the people did, verse 12. This is the mark of the redeemed. The redeemed know how to eat and drink. They eat and drink to the glory of God. To not eat and drink to the glory of God, what a missed opportunity. It might be the most commonly committed sin happening every day on this planet. Eating and drinking to the glory of self. Eating and drinking to the glory of our bellies or for the pure satisfaction of it. Instead, God prescribes a way of eating and drinking as a mark of celebration in light of his grace in a way that only his people can do. As they look to him as the giver of food and as the giver of all things that taste good Drew and Chase and I were having lunch on Thursday, and we were uh, we were social distance. Yes, I need to say that, I suppose. And uh, and I prayed before. We thanked the Lord for good food. We had casa taco, 
And we thank the Lord for good food, and I thank the Lord that the Lord is happy. And we serve a happy God, and the, the fingerprints of his happiness are everywhere, or else queso wouldn't taste like that. <laughs> Let that be your strength. Christians are those who know how to relax. They can. God is pleased with them. You can let your guard down. You can put your work aside. Christians are to be those who know how to care for others because they've been cared for. Christians are those who know what a good Sunday afternoon looks like. I don't have the theological conviction that Sunday should be a Sabbath. I think now the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ and every day for the Christian is a day of rest, spiritually speaking. But let me get this Sabbatarian on you. Let me just put it this way. Sunday is special. It shouldn't be go to church and then get back to work. Go your way. Eat your bread. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you've done. That's Ecclesiastes 9, 7. Go your way, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. And in the big picture of the Bible, we know what that means in Christ. He has approved what we do on account of Christ. He's approved us because of Christ and what he has done. He has earned the approval. And by faith we stand in him. And so if you're not yet a Christian, we hold that out to you. We commend this good news, this gospel, this God, this message, this word of his grace to you. Believe in Jesus. He's our hope. He is the perfect basis upon which we can finally get perfect acceptance and unchanging acceptance with God. And there's no other way. You can't earn it. And Jesus won't be a, a half helper. He will be your substitute. He'll be your replacement if you trust him. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he lived a perfect life leading up to the cross so that we would be able to go not away from God's presence, but in his presence. To go, eat our bread with joy and drink wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what we do in Christ. And now there's a fourth R. Remembering according to the word. Remembering according to the word. Look down, verses 13 and following. I'll just read a few of the verses of this paragraph. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Stop there for now. Just a couple matters that sit at face value. What would you do the day of the spiritual, the day after the spiritual feast of verses 1 through 12? Well, we don't have to read our Bibles today. I mean, yesterday we had six hours of it. And we celebrated richly and theologically to the glory of God for the rest of the day. 
glory to God, let's do something else now. No, they studied the Bible the next day. And notice who went to see Ezra to study the Bible. In your family, who would go the next day to get answers from Ezra about the Bible? Heads of households? Or not? I think a lot of men would have to admit, no, my my wife would do that. She would say, I got some questions for Ezra, I'm going to go. And you'd say, go. Go. I'm going golfing. Or maybe she would say to you, when are you going to go ask Ezra some questions? When are you going to go ask him some Bible? Get us some Bible answers from Ezra. And eventually she would bark that enough that you would go. Well, here, heads of households went to Ezra to study the Bible. And then the next verse, verse 14, they found written in it, that the people should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. This refers to the feast of booths or the feast of tents as it's sometimes called. This was a yearly festival for remembering the exodus. God's people would live in handmade huts for a week to remind them that, well, as it says in Leviticus 23, God said, I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. They were a tent-dwelling people back then. And once a year, spend a week in the tent so that you remember what it was like. And you remember how God provided. And you remember how he saw you through. And remember that you're always a people sojourning on in his glorious plan. Apparently, God's people hadn't celebrated that yearly celebration very well in a long time. But here, having got it from the Word, having rediscovered it, well, they obeyed it. And they obeyed it with joy. They remembered what God had done. They remembered what they'd been through. They remembered how God provided. They remembered their position in this world as sojourners. God's people still today are a people sojourning through. Peter loves this language. Peter speaks to his his readers as exiles and sojourners and aliens and strangers. We're still people who need reminding. Uh, We're the kind of people fully dependent on God like those who were the first people of the exodus. Now in the New Covenant, we don't need to celebrate those feasts of the Old Testament, like the Feast of Booths. In fact, I'm not sure you should. Some of you are excited about this. A week of camping prescribed by the Bible, I'm in. Well... Keep this in mind, Galatians 4, Paul told those people, you observe days and months and seasons and years, exclamation point, I'm afraid you've labored in vain. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, something's changed this side of the cross. There isn't any longer seven feasts that point back, but now one essential feast that points back to the cross. 
Colossians 2, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. What we'll find as we read on in Nehemiah in weeks ahead is that the walls of the city won't keep sin out and that the old feasts really can't change people's heart from the inside out. Something more is needed and something more has come in Christ. And we have a meal that celebrates that, a new covenant. We got a better meal than all seven of the Old Testament combined. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given it, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you drink this cup, this cup of the new covenant in my blood, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, let me pray, and then we'll sing another song, and then I'll come back up and lead us in partaking of the Lord's Supper. Lord, make us a people ready for your word, not just each Sunday, but every day, every moment. Make us a people busy about relaying your word and receiving your word. May we respond to it with joy, repentance and joy. In obedience as well. Not least the obedience of remembering our Savior's death in this meal he's given us in the cup and in the bread. Help us as we partake of it in just a bit, Lord, to do it to your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and as one man respond together. stand and lift up our hands for the joy of the Lord is our strength we bow down and worship him now how great how awesome is he and together we sing Yeah, the we sing. 
is filled with his glory. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. The earth is filled with his glory. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to God's people said, you can be seated. God's word shows us how great our sin is and how greater his grace is than our sin. And this meal, the Lord's Supper, does the same. It, it shows us, it reveals to us how sinful we are. It took nothing less than the death of the Son of God upon that cruel cross to save you and to save me. It shows us our sin, but it shows us how great his grace is. As we think about worship that is worthy of a God this great, we all fall short. It's good for us to feel it, feel it in our bones to mourn, and then for mourning to turn to faith and assurance and celebration. And so we partake of this meal today as those who know and believe what it represents, that Jesus' blood has been spilled for our sins and we're forgiven, not because of anything we've done, but only because of his grace. If you believe that this morning, then we invite you to partake with us. If you don't yet believe that yet, uh, well, we'd encourage you to not partake of this meal. This is for those who, well, for those for whom it represents what is true of them, what God has done, what Jesus has done for them. And we invite you to partake of this Jesus this morning but hold off on partaking of this meal until you more fully understand uh, who he is and what he's done for you. But for those who do know this to be true, you can look down and pull out your elements if you would and maybe even begin to open up what you have in front of you. We'll partake of this in just a bit, but I want you to first take a moment on your own before we partake for you to have some quiet examination in prayer before the Lord, for you to once again confess your sin before the Lord, at least that you are a sinner and that this week has proven that again. 
or even this morning has proven it afresh, tell the Lord that and confess to him that you believe his grace is greater than all your sin. Go before his throne of grace boldly in light of the body of Christ who was, which was crucified for you. Go boldly to his throne of grace to find help and mercy in this time of need. So talk to the Lord for a moment on your own before I pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death upon the cross for our sins. We look down at this bread and are reminded that your body was torn for us. You were pierced through for our iniquities. On you was laid our sin. And yet, Lord, you did not remain on that cross, but went to the grave, and through the grave you rose victoriously. In light of this great grace, we partake of this meal in remembrance of you. Amen. Would you partake with me? First Corinthians 10 says, The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in in the blood of Christ, we partake of one bread and one cup. Let's pray before we partake of this cup. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood which mysteriously washes our sins white as snow. We thank you for your blood. We thank you, Lord, for the hope of your return. We thank you, Lord, that this is a temporary meal sweet as it is and better than any feast before really better than anything we'll eat all day but not better than the feast we'll have in a new heaven and a new earth when we join you and we celebrate the marriage of the lamb with his saints forever and ever until then lord feed us sustain us make us utterly dependent upon you and your grace forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's partake of this together. Well, stand. let's stand together and let's sing of that day when we will take up that grand feast in heaven with our Lord. Come and die. The Savior calls, come and die, the Savior calls, Eve and live. We will sit at Jesus' table. We will say a 
Jesus' table, drink and thirst no more, for he has a table that day? Will you be with his saints at the table? Will you be redeemed by the Lamb forevermore? If you are not in that position yet, if you do not find yourself in possession of an entrance ticket, well, Revelation, the book, ends. Our Bibles end with this invitation. Come, you who are thirsty, come. You who are hungry, come. That's the only requirement you need to come to Jesus is recognition that you don't have what it takes, but he does. You're hungry and thirsty for what he alone can give. We pray you would come. You can email us if you have questions about that at info at dsc, at info at dscabq.com. Or if you're in the room here, you'd like to visit with a pastor afterwards, we would love to visit with you, to pray with you to talk to you more about this Jesus that you're perhaps becoming more acquainted with but yet have not fully embraced. We understand. Uh, We would love to help you. Let us know how we can help. Let us all hear from this, from Nehemiah 8, verse 10, and the companion verse in Ecclesiastes 9. Go your way, 
eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing. Yes, indeed, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do in Christ. Amen.